We're in Mark chapter 12 tonight, and we'll read verses 35 till the end of the chapter. Mark chapter 12, 35 till the end. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, How is it that the teachers of the law say that the Christ is the Son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? The large crowd listened to him with delight. As he taught, Jesus said, Watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted in the marking places and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished most severely. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowds putting their money in the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins, worth only a fraction of a penny. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. Now in chapter 12 so far, we have seen various Jewish authorities, important people with status and theological training, questioning Jesus and plotting against him. We saw that the parable of the tenants at the beginning of the chapter was about the tenants plotting and rebelling against uh, the owner of the vineyard. And if you just go back a little bit to chapter 11:27, you can see that that passage was addressed to the chief priest, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Then after that, the Pharisees and Herodians were sent to try and catch Jesus out. They used the issue of paying tax to the Romans picked a nice controversial issue and hoped that the answer of Jesus would be such that they could arrest him for it, that they could put an end to his ministry because of the answers he might be giving. Then the Sadducees had their turn. Now we know the Sadducees didn't believe in a life after death. They didn't believe in a resurrection. And they tried to get Jesus caught out by scriptural teachings on the resurrection. So a lot of people, important people, came to ask questions, but they weren't really questions. They were just a means to try and catch Jesus at his own words and get him into trouble and put an end to his whole ministry, his healing his teaching, him traveling around with the disciples and, as far as they were concerned, making a nuisance of him, himself. But not all the teachers of the law were like that. They weren't all hypocrites 
who only asked questions because they hoped for the wrong answer. One seemed quite genuine in his inquiries also in this chapter. And after listening to some of Jesus' answers to the previous groups who approached him, uh, he's willing to move beyond all the niceties of theological debates and rabbinic teaching. And he acknowledges that, yes, it's loving God with all your heart, understanding and strength, and your neighbor as yourself, that is the most important thing. It's much more important than burnt offerings and sacrifices, and also it's implied more important than all the theological debates that had been going on with the other groups. And Jesus commends him. But he is very much the exception. Now in our passage for tonight, the tables are turned. Now it's no longer all kinds of other authorities asking questions of Jesus. Now Jesus asks a question. He addresses the crowd. However, they are the people who need to make up their mind. So, it's all about this passage, who Jesus really is. What kind of person is he? What kind of things is he talking about? It's about his identity and why he is actually there and what his ministry is all about. We've seen that with the other exception, the Jewish authorities had already clearly made up their mind about Jesus. He needs to die as soon as possible as he poses a danger to their authority and their understanding of Judaism. But here Jesus addresses the crowd and presents them with a question. He poses a choice that they need to make. A choice about who they believe Jesus is. The authorities have made up their minds and the crowds will have picked up on that. But now it's about them. Who do you, who do they believe Jesus is? Now when Jesus entered Jerusalem, we read the crowds were very enthusiastic. They were lining the road he was coming in on. They were shouting, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. They thought it was great that Jesus was coming. And they were seemingly very, very positive about him. But what does it really mean when they shout, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David? What did they mean by that? What did they understand that to mean? Well, understanding who Jesus was, why he came, what he was doing there amidst them, was intrinsically linked to the idea of this restored kingdom of David that they were shouting and cheering about. And that goes back to God's promise to David that we read earlier about in 2 Samuel chapter 7. The passage was talking about David not being the one to build a house for the Lord, not the one to build a temple. His son Solomon would. So it was about David's son Solomon. 
but it was also about the Messiah who would establish the throne forever. Yeah, just reading through, we realized that Solomon's reign wasn't really that long. That couldn't be a reign forever. So when it talks about an eternal reign, it must talk about something else. It was referring to the Messiah. And there are many other Old Testament passages that talk about this reign, this new kingdom. And some of them make the Messianic references quite a bit clearer. So in Isaiah, it says, Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Or in Jeremiah, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judas will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called, the Lord our righteous Savior. Now if you look at Jesus' genealogy in the Gospel of Mark, it clearly shows that he is a descendant of David. And the crowds realized this, as was clear from their shouts when he was entering Jerusalem. And this wasn't the issue that upset the authorities. The Pharisees and the Sadducees and the chief priests and the scribes, they didn't mind someone coming and saying, that's me, I'm in this line of David. That claim in and of itself was perfectly fine. It was what Jesus took it to mean that was the issue and that caused the conflict. Scribal tradition equated son of David with Messiah. Just look at verse 35. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, how is it that the teachers of the law say that the Christ is the son of David? So that was clearly accepted. The Messiah was going to be a son of David. And they quite rightly linked it with the restoration of the kingdom. The passages we had on the screen are quite clear about that as well. But what does it mean? That's the big question. And now Jesus wants to make the crowd, the people, think about the nature of that kingdom. Yes, son of David. Yes, a restored kingdom. But what does it mean? What is the nature of the kingdom? And indeed, what is the nature of messiahship? What is the messiah actually coming for? So he goes back to what David said about the issue in Psalm 110. That's the quote David himself speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David calls him him the Messiah, Lord. So how can he be his son? There seems to be a bit of a contradiction there. And that's the question that Jesus poses. 
verse 37, David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? Now the scribes would have immediately recognized this type of question. It was the same kind of question, the same kind of literary device, if you like, that they employed in a text called the Haggadah, a text that they read at the Passover celebrations. There were a number of questions in there as well that had exactly this kind of form and even purpose. It was used to try and reconcile two things that didn't sit easily with each other, that were seemingly contradictory. In the Haggadah they were talking about various things. Why do we do this when usually we do that? Trying to clarify for maybe the children or the rest of the people why they were doing what they were doing at the Passover celebrations. But here the contradiction is a different one. The Messiah is a descendant of David, a son of David. But there in the psalm, you have David himself calling the Messiah his Lord. His great-great-grandson he calls Lord. That's the contradiction that Jesus highlights. Now the first word, when it reads, the Lord said to my Lord, the first word, Lord, is Yahweh. So in the psalm, Psalm 110 The first occurrence of Lord is Yahweh, the covenant name of the God of Israel, but of the most holy name that the Jews became afraid to even utter, the covenant name of the God of Israel. That's the first Lord. So Yahweh said to my Lord, and that second Lord is Adonai with the sense of Lord and Master. And it's interesting to note that Jesus precedes this quote of David, of the psalm, by saying David himself speaking by the Holy Spirit. Now we've all, as church, come to accept that when we come to the Bible, it's the inspired word of God. We don't have to say every time when Tim reads a passage on a Sunday morning that whoever... Paul writing this inspired by the Holy Spirit. We all take that for granted. But Jesus emphasizes it here to make very clear that what David was saying there was a prophetic utterance. It wasn't his emotions towards God that he expressed in many other Psalms, which we also take to be inspired scripture. But Jesus brings it out, makes it very, very clear This the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet, was prophetic. So, why does Jesus bring this out? What does it mean? What did David mean by it? Well, I'm sure you all agree there's no better way than to let scripture interpret scripture. So let's read what Peter has to say, because he uses the very same passage when at Pentecost he addresses the crowds. So we're in Acts chapter 2 now. We'll read a few verses starting at verse 29. So Acts chapter 2 from verse 29 onwards. The context is the disciples were gathered together for Pentecost 
and the Holy Spirit came down on them and they were all speaking, praying in different tongues, in different languages. And there were Jews from all parts of the Roman Empire present who knew all kinds of different languages since they lived in different places. They had just come to Jerusalem for the feast. And all of a sudden, Jews from all kinds of different places with all kinds of different languages heard this strange little group of disciples praising God in their own language. That was a bit strange. Some people who maybe didn't quite realize that these were real languages said, well, they're just drunk. It was a bit early in the day, but maybe that explains all the weird stuff that's going on. And Peter responds. Peter stands up and speaks to the crowd and says, well, no, this isn't us being drunk. It's way too early for that. This is something else. This is what was prophesied by Joel in the Old Testament. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. And he starts to explain to the Jews what is going on. And then he comes to the bit I would like to read, verse 29. Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he wasn't abandoned to the grave, and nor did his body see decay. God had raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David didn't ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. So, there we have another passage that quotes the very same thing that David was or has written in the psalm. David himself, it says, and it makes clear here, clearly distinguishes between his own earthly kingdom. He was ruling as a king appointed and anointed by God right there on earth in his kingdom in Israel. He distinguishes between that and the much higher sovereignty of the Messiah, calling him Lord. So David was aware of a difference there. And therefore the nature of the Messiah's kingdom is different as well. If the Messiah has a much higher authority, a most high sovereignty, then the kingdom that that Messiah establishes must be different as well. So the role of the Messiah wasn't restoring David's earthly kingdom, which was the general expectation of the Jewish people at the time, not restoring Israel as an independent sovereign nation. That was just the scribe's idea. And Jesus wants the people to think about that. And with this question, makes it clear that the scribe's idea 
of a restored political nation of Israel was simplistic and wrong. The only way that this saying of David, the Lord said to my Lord, makes any sense is if you acknowledge that the Messiah is much more than just a biological descendant of David. It wouldn't make sense for him to call his grandson Lord otherwise. Now the Gospel of Mark has been called a passion narrative with an extended introduction, making clear that the whole focus of the Gospel of Mark is on the passion. It's all about Jesus' death and resurrection. And what Jesus is saying here isn't that long before his crucifixion, before his death. And without the passion, nothing in the Gospel of Mark, nothing in the Gospel as a whole, makes sense. We can't understand it without taking that into view. So the restoration of David's kingdom isn't what the scribes, and largely we presume the crowds, expected. It is not re-establishing Israel's independence. We can listen to Paul, how he describes the gospel in Romans 1. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scripture regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Earthly descendant in the line of David, but the Son of God, and that's why he could be the Messiah. And that's also why the kingdom that he is going to establish is something completely different from a political nation of Israel. So the seeming contradiction of David calling his son Lord can only be resolved in this way by realizing that the kingdom being restored isn't an earthly kingdom. It's something way, way beyond that. In Hebrews 9, it says, For this reason Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. Jesus poses them with a question. If they answer the question to themselves, the only conclusion they can come to is that the Messiah's job, if you like, is restoring a completely different kind of kingdom. The crowds, we say, we read, listen to him with delight. I think it's doubtful whether they really understood what Jesus was trying to say. We know that even his disciples at the end of uh, their time with Jesus on earth didn't yet have a full grasp of what's going on. So it's doubtful that the crowds really understood what the implications were here. But they loved it, they enjoyed it because of the discomfort of the scribes. Now Jesus was asking them questions. He wasn't being put on the spot anymore. Now the scribes were on the spot. And that was interesting, that was cool, that was funny. They liked it. They had one of their own sort of literary techniques, this questioning, used against them. But the next three verses from 38 onward make it very clear that Jesus' issue with the scribes wasn't just about interpretation of scripture, 
They didn't have a theological falling out about the niceties of Scripture, or not only. He makes a very direct warning. Watch out for the teachers of the law. He's being very explicit here. There is no sort of holding back. He gives a warning that these are not people to be respected or followed. Rather than ensuring what they should have done, that only God receives praise. They put themselves on a pedestal. They walk around in nice white flowing robes, making sure that when they go out on the market, they are being recognized by anyone for who they are. They are scribes. They are important people. They need to be respected. They make long and elaborate prayers to show how special and holy they are and how great their understanding of God is. They insist on being seated at the front of the synagogue to get the best seats at banquets. They want the places of honor. And the people indeed venerated scribes. It went way beyond just respect. They would rise in their presence. They would address them with titles of respect like rabbi, father or master. And although the scribes weren't paid for being a scribe for their role, they did quite often live of the hospitality of the people. So they had an awful lot to lose, which goes some way to explaining their animosity towards Jesus. So Jesus warns them, the crowd, for these kind of people who appear so very special, so set aside for service towards God. And he warns them that they are hypocrites. And that's contrasted with the poor widow. Now the NIV leaves a gap there, like it's a completely different passage. But it flows on quite naturally. After he had said these things about the scribes, about the teachers of the law... Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowds putting their money in the offertory. And the widow puts in only two coins of the smallest denomination worth less than a penny, a really pitiful, very small amount. But it is interesting that it was two coins. Yeah, if it's one coin, you can't really split it. It will break your teeth. You have to put it in. Or not. But with two coins, you've got a choice, haven't you? You can keep one and put the other one in. But she put both in. Yes, it was a very small amount. But she could have halved it and kept a little bit for herself and maybe been able to buy a very small meal in the evening. I don't know what this one coin would have bought her. But she could have kept one. Jesus tells his disciples, this is all she has, what you've just seen her put in there. Although the monetary value of the gift was negligible, particularly compared with the large amounts that other people, rich people, were putting in. Jesus says she, in effect, gave more. They gave out of their wealth, he said. She gave everything she had to live on. And that's the clue, isn't it? She gave everything she had 
to live on everything she had went into the offering. What does that mean when you give up all your resources? Yeah, a lot of us have jobs. We get a monthly paycheck. If you don't have a job, then uh, you will get some benefits. You might have some saving. You're most likely not going to go hungry. Now give up everything you have. That means you'll have to trust God. If you give up your paycheck, if you give up your benefits, say, I don't want it anymore, I give it all to the church, then all of a sudden you're very, very vulnerable. And that's very, very difficult. We don't want to be vulnerable. We want to be in control. I remember a situation, uh, some of you know that uh, Barbara and I and Kevin were in Nigeria for a bit. I taught at the Bible College. Barbara worked at a leprosy hospital. And we had to go home much sooner than we planned because of health issues. And Barbara and Kevin had gone ahead because their health was really quite poorly and I finished teaching the semester and then went to Lagos to the airport to fly home as well. And I was told my ticket would wait at the KLM counter. And when I got to the KLM counter, they had an entry for me. Yes, you're on the flight, but your ticket isn't here. The missionary society at the last minute had decided we're going to courier your ticket out to the Bible college. Where it had indeed, I heard later, arrived a couple of days after I'd left. So I was in Lagos with, yes, my name was on the manifest. I should be on that plane but I didn't have a ticket to get on there. And Lagos can be quite an intimidating city, so I needed to try and get that ticket somehow. I stayed at the Baptist guest house, and the man who ran the guest house drove me all over the place, to the Dutch embassy, to the KLM office, to a different KLM office, and at some point uh, we were followed by a car full of armed robbers with guns sticking out of the windows. I was getting more and more worked up and nervous and hibbly, and they all handled it quite calmly. There was nothing doing. I couldn't get the ticket, and I did have some reserve dollars with me, but not enough to buy a new ticket. So the man from the KLM guest house said, well, have you got a checkbook? Which we did, because that's how we sort of got our money exchanged at the Bible College. So he said, well, write me a check. I said, what good is that going to do you? I said, you write me a check, I'll give you the equivalent amount of money in dollars and you can buy your ticket. So he was sensible. He had a good stash of dollars there in case of emergencies, but he was willing to give that to me. So I wrote him the check and later I saw he was indeed somehow able to cash that, so he did get his money back. But I was exceedingly grateful and I could buy a new ticket, and I could fly home away from the armed robbers and things. So I was quite happy to get home. My conclusion from this episode was, if I ever go to Nigeria again, I will go with a big enough pile of dollars or pounds so I can buy a new ticket, because I don't want to be caught out like that again. And it was years That's how slow a learner I can be. It was years before I realized that was actually quite a silly conclusion. I didn't trust God. I said, if I ever go out there again, I'll have a couple of thousand dollars in my pocket. 
So if I lose my ticket, I can buy a new one. If I get in trouble, I can buy myself out. It took me years before it clicked that I was in a situation of dependence on God. And he didn't let me down. There was a guy there who I hadn't known for more than a day who was willing to give me his reserve money so I could buy a ticket. God had taken care of me. God was faithful. So, yes, I can depend on him. But it's, it's difficult if you're in an awkward situation and you feel caught and you can't get out. It's very difficult. It's very painful. This widow gave everything she had, which meant from that point on, she was totally dependent on God. Somehow, God needed to provide for her that she would have food that evening and the next day. And I don't know for how long until she got more money, if she ever did. It's trusting God and giving your all to him. That's what the lady did. That's what I sort of misinterpreted and it took me years before it clicked that I could actually rely on God and he would and does take care of me. And that's the contrast that we have in this passage between the scribes who are all about themselves and the old lady who is willing to completely dedicate herself to God. Not by walking around in flowing white robes and being respected as an important person, but just putting that little bit of money in. And it's of something that's of special relevance to discipleship. That's why Jesus called the disciples to him and pointed out to them what was going on. Trusting God and giving her all to him. Now, just to sum up, as I mentioned in the beginning, the passage is all about who is Jesus? Who is he really? And it's also about how we respond to that once we realize who he is. The Jewish authorities, priests, Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, all these important people asked a lot of questions of Jesus. Not questions to actually learn, but questions to catch him out. And I'm sure a lot of us will have experience of people like that as well. They hear you're a Christian. Some people are genuinely interested. Others just want a discussion to sort of try and win on points. And that's what they were doing, trying to catch him out. They had already made up their minds about Jesus, saw him as a threat, wanted to get rid of him. And then Jesus asked a question. He challenged the crowds, the people who were maybe still open to learn and to listen, unlike the authorities. He challenged the crowds to make up their own minds about him. It's very, very interesting. Jesus doesn't answer his own question. The question is there to make them think. It's not as you are being told this kingdom that's coming, this kingdom of David that's being restored by the Messiah. Just listen to the question. There's something iffy here. There's something off. The answers you're being given are not correct. So the question is there to make them think, make them decide for themselves. That's what we all need to do, isn't it? And this idea of making up your mind can be carried over to the second half of the passage as well. 
That second half gives us a sort of litmus test to see what kind of disciple are we, or even are we really disciples? Are we really trusting? What are our motivations for doing things, for doing things in the church? Do we like the recognition it brings us, the status that comes with certain roles? Or do we have better motivations than that? To what degree are we like the scribes? To what degree do we want recognition? And that's why we do certain things. The widow gave all she had. And if you just think about it, that in itself was a painful thing to do. Those pitiful two little coins put those in and it was obvious people could see it. Other people came with big bags of money and put it in the offertory and she put those two little coins in for everyone to see. How embarrassing. Is that all you've got? Is that all you want to give? Ha! Horrible. Yet she did it. That's a question that bears on motivation. What is our motivation? Do we want to be recognized or are we willing like the widow to not only give everything that's at our disposal to God but bear the embarrassment that it might bring with it as well? Are you willing to trust him? As I was after my Nigerian experience not willing to do, I said if I ever go out there again I'll have enough money on me to buy a new ticket. Completely the wrong conclusion. What conclusions are we drawing in our lives and from our experiences with God and our experiences in church? Are we trusting him and are we giving everything that we have for him to use however he might want to use it? Whether it's something that we enjoy doing or something that brings recognition or something that goes largely unnoticed? Are we willing to pray? Do we put effort in praying for the people next to us, for our work colleagues, for our neighbors, when no one sees it? When you pray at night before you go to bed, no one sees that but God. You won't get any credit from Tim, from, oh, you're such a great prayer. He doesn't know. Are we willing, are we doing those kind of things? Are we willing to dedicate everything despite embarrassment it might bring and despite the fact that no one, no human might actually recognize you for it? That's what this passage, I think, is encouraging us to do. Shall we close by singing All I Once Held Dear Built My Life Upon?